today we're talking about the sum of power and the separation of powers. I get this slender slice of the middle uh, or near the middle of the Federalist Papers to talk about. Uh, the way I want us to begin today is to uh, start where we ended in a way. Um, we had a, a discussion of uh, Federalist 10 and uh, in many ways Publius is finishing or completing the argument he began in Federalist 10 with Federalist 51, which is uh, what we'll be focusing on primarily today. Uh, you'll see, you probably noticed in that lengthy essay, Federalist 51, a repeat of Madison's, uh, his, Madison's argument in Federalist 10. Uh, and then he adds a couple of things that are very important. Uh, and one might wonder, well, why is he repeating himself you know, way over in 51? Why does he have to bring that topic up again? Uh, and I would argue, and this is the way I teach the class, I would argue that it has a lot to do with what Hamilton has been calling his plan, or what we're referring to as the outline. Um, I constantly remind my students, uh, and I have the luxury of taking them through many of the Federalist Papers through a course on American government. Uh, I have the luxury of reminding them over and over again as we make our way through the Federalist uh, of where are we in the outline? Where are we in the outline? I constantly ask them that. If we're, talk if we're talking about Federalist 2, if we're talking about Federalist 14 as opposed to 15, 22 as opposed to 23, 37, 51, 52, uh, where are we in Publius's outline? Because if you know where you are in the outline, you, you uh, can have a better understanding of why he's making a particular argument. Because that particular argument is contributing to a much uh, larger theme or topic that he's addressing. And I want to show us a little bit about that today uh, before we go into Federalist 51 in some detail. So uh, just as a recap, argument of Federalist 10, and then I'm going to say, where are we in the outline? And you'll, and you'll see uh, how this all fits together. Uh, what was the, with the general point that Publius was making in uh, that, that most famous now, justly famous, uh, Federalist 10? Okay, something about factions. Factions, good things or bad things? Bad. They're bad things, but because we can't get rid of them, the only alternative is, is, is he says, is we have to you know, uh, control its effects. We have to break the violence of factions. We can't get rid of them we have to somehow uh, accommodate ourselves to them in a way that uh, uh, mitigates the damage that they do. And how do we do it? What's that? Dilute them. Uh, we dilute them by adding water? I mean, <laughs> extending the sphere or enlarging the orbit are the two, uh, two of the phrases that he uses, right? In other words, uh, what makes factions successful is by circumscribing them. It's the anti-federalist you know, uh, argument for them the only way you can promote uh, virtuous government, or they probably wouldn't use that phrase, the only way that you can keep your government honest is by keeping it close. Having a smaller society, right? Smaller is better because people know one another better. It leads to a more homogenous society, uh, and, and it, it makes it more likely that those who are representing you actually look like you. Think about representation as two words, re-presenting. The anti-federalists wanted the rulers not to be all that different from the ruled, literally. That's why they liked numerous representation rather than few reps. Um, short terms, rotation in office, all of that folds into this kind of small Republican argument. Publius, is in one of many 
counterintuitive arguments for the day, argues you're getting it wrong. We've got to do the opposite, actually. We have to use heterogeneity, a variety of factions to our advantage. A majority faction is bad for the minority in a free society because all you do is a show of hands and it looks legitimate the way they're going to violate the rights of the minority. We took a vote on it. So we say, fine, let not a thousand flowers bloom, let a thousand factions bloom, right? Let's create a more diverse society, enlarge or extend the sphere, enlarge the orbit, take in a greater number of the very thing we don't like in hopes that what will happen? Yeah, none. Wow. The upper hand. Uh, no, I like ascendancy. I know. Forget junior hires. I like that. <laughs> Tell them to look it up. I like that. I'll write that one up. Ah, that, that none will gain the ascendancy, i.e., that if you have so many factions, no one faction will become the faction, the majority. Uh, uh, go ahead. Well, I was thinking if you're teaching this in a history course, it might be good to then look closer to the end of the course, look back on all the periods you've studied in American history and say, was he right? Because for a lot of the 19th century, I don't know that he was right. I mean, think how long the Southern factions dominated in the Congress. And think how long the wealthier factions dominated and how, you know, it took us really to the progressive era before you had a counterbalance in some ways. Um, yeah, we, uh, that would require you to look at fairly closely what we mean by faction. First, what Publius means by faction, and perhaps what we might mean by it. And it's become kind of a neutered term in our day. We just think any interest group is a faction, and that's not quite what Publius says. Um, what would Publius say about the AARP? That's a great example. In fact, that's what I ask my students. What are the factions that exist today? The AARP, NRA, are those factions? NAACP, is that a faction? Ku Klux Klan, is that a faction? Any, I wasn't going to say anything about NEA. <laughs> Not going to go there. Uh, Chris. Yeah, a couple of things. One, I think it's important to make a distinction between factions and interests. Yes. Publius uh, does not advocate multiplying factions. A faction is an interest that is adverse to the public good and individual rights. That's the key word. Sorry, he go ahead. advocates multiplying the interest. That's one thing. The other thing is, um, as to the question of uh, whether this scheme works out or not, when we get to Federal 63, there are other places as well, but you will see Madison is quite conscious that this is not a panacea, that extending the sphere and multiplying the interests, when you extend the sphere that way, he tells us in Federal 63, a danger is that if a majority faction gets established, it can be much more difficult to move. Right. So he's aware that there are yeah, thank you. I, I may have misspoke earlier when I said about multiplying factions. I mean, that may very well happen, but the, the idea is that none of them would become the majority of faction. But the, the key term there I, I have my students look for, and I, I pose this as a question, is that famous definition of faction. The key term is that term, in my opinion, adverse. Okay. Many textbooks, civics books, even college ones, make the mistake of defining faction as if it was a mere interest group, right? That the chapter on interest groups and parties, guess what they always refer to? Federalist 10, as if that was the argument uh, that Publius was making. And Publius says, Publius, I mean, 
the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. Factions are bad things. They're bad because they exist to gain something at the expense of either the common good, right, the permanent and aggregate interests of the whole, or uh, 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 against uh, individual rights, right? Uh, and so he, one thing we don't want kids to ma immediately make an association with is between factions uh, and interest groups. I really didn't spend too much time on this, but go ahead. What if somebody asked them, how about slavery? Well, yeah. Is that an interest group? It certainly is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Depends on your point of view. Well, that's the question that always comes up is, well, who gets to define what a faction is? point here, though, is that it, it precisely becomes a question for the public to answer with regards to these groups. Which, what is a faction and what is a, just a mere interest group? Um, and of course, even a faction would have to masquerade like a mere interest group to get their way. I'm seeing your distinction without a difference. No, the difference is an interest group can, per, like for example, um, try Sierra Club, can I, can I use that one? Yes. Or the Nature, cons the nature Conservancy. You can, you can advocate a particular interest that is consistent with the common good. As you interpret it. No, no, I think, oh, but it will always be subject to interpretation. That doesn't mean it's subjective. Isn't he really just talking about property, those that have property and those that don't have property? He says that's the most, that's the most salient one. Okay. But the key thing I'm trying to, to, to distinguish here is the interest group from a faction. That the faction can't, it gets what it wants by undermining the common good or in a way that violates somebody's rights. Promoting a better environment is consistent, I would argue, with the common good. Now, there are bad ways of doing that and there are good ways. Uh, but again, I would say that the, uh, the, the, simply because it's subject to interpretation, that doesn't mean that there is no difference between an interest group on the one hand and a uh, faction on the other. I'm sorry? Did you answer my question? I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> Yeah. As a I well, <laughs> yeah. I don't think he would. I'm, unless I, there's something about the ARP that I don't know. I, I don't. I think he would be less. I think. I think he'd be less afraid of them. It could become a faction, right? Remember, remember the. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Faculties 
property right interest. Is the first degree of government. Yeah, he's paraphrasing Locke. Right. So, does the AARP own property? Yeah. Does slaveholders own property? Oh, yeah. He probably is going to be opposed to either one. To be sure, but you're dealing with a federal constitution at this point. Okay. And he, Madison, as you will see, that the most direct reference to slavery is in Federalist 54, right? When he starts talking about uh, Congress and, and apportionment, the, the famous uh, or infamous three-fifths compromise. Uh, and here is where prudence is called for. Uh, on the one hand, slavery is adverse to private rights and ultimately to the common good, I think we could argue. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a pre-existing institution, an institution that antecedes uh, uh, the Constitution itself, the Declaration of Independence. And so what, what I think Publius argues is over time, and what the founders, many of them slaveholders, argue over time, actually we're going to talk about this uh, at, as part of our dinner discussion tonight, uh, was uh, regardless of whether they could attack slavery where it then existed at that time, the question was, were, could they and did they set up an apparatus at the federal level that would lead to the uh, elimination of slavery over time? That, and I would argue that, that that's precisely what they did. Um, and that requires an argument, and I, and I hope for us to get into that this evening. But uh, there's no way that Publius, at least in Federalist 10, is going to name slaveholders and just call them out as factious uh, in Federalist 10. I'm pretty close to it on the next, in the next sentence. Go ahead. From the protection of different and unequal faculties of acquiring property, possession of different degrees and kinds of property immediately results. And from the influence of these on the sentiments and views of the respective proprietors ensures a division of the society into different interests and parties. Looking at property and shadow property mm -hmm. in real property. Uh, you got to remember, though, that, and again, he, he's more specific in 54 about whether he views slaves as property proper. I'm just saying in Federalist 10. No, generally speaking, you could read that into that. Chris? I, just want to say, I, don't, I don't think that that's a warranted interpretation of that passage. In fact, if you read the passage there, Madison is saying, if you want freedom, and you do, you're going to have diversity of interest, including diversity and multiplicity of different kinds and ownership of property. Where you do not find uh, a variety of interests, you're looking at a despotism. Mm -hmm. So he says, we, you know, we want liberty and freedom, and because we want that, we know we're going to have a diversity of uh, interests, and that includes a diversity of uh, owning a variety of kinds uh, and degrees of property. And that's what you, you know, the first object of government is to protect the unequal faculties of the citizens for acquiring property. And where government succeeds in that, you will find different degrees and kinds of property being owned. Yeah. That's his argument. Yeah, I think that's his argument as, as far as it goes. In other words, he's not making a more specific argument. I, I Explain to me the first sentence of the paragraph. Well, I just did. 
I just say, you know, if you turn over and look on 74, he refers to landed interest, manufacturing interest, mercantile interest. I mean, all of that's property of different types. So slavery would be in there, but it's not, I don't think it's exclusively a discussion about slave owners. He refers to debtors and creditors as well. All right. Well, we could we could have uh, we could continue that discussion uh, at lunch and, and uh, in between the sessions. Uh, the main reason why I brought us back to Federalist Ten was to see how Publius makes the argument he does in Federalist Ten in light of the overarching arguments he's making. If you guys can turn to page thirty and look at the outline okay, and see how this ties us or brings us back to Federalist Fifty One or brings us to, up to Federalist 51. Is it page 30 where Hamilton gives his yeah. outline? Okay, well, remember what's the first point in the outline? And I repeat this so often to my students that they pretty much memorize the outline uh, fairly early into the term. What's the, what's the first <coughs> thing he is going to talk about in the Federalist Papers? He, and he does this Federalist 1 through 14. Go ahead. The utility of the union to your political prosperity. Okay. Why union is not an option, but the option. Why it's not just, it would be nice if we stayed together, but, you know, if we don't stay together, we could still be a free people, you know, individually. And the most likely thing that would have happened, he argues, is not that all 13 states would go it alone. Most likely would have happened is they would have broken up into what he calls partial confederacies, and the breadbasket states, the southern, deep south uh, southern states, and then the northeasterners, right? That, that's what most likely would have happened. Uh, they, they would have realized that they could not have just, especially the smaller states, go, gone it alone. Uh, what he argues in Federalist 1 through 14 is the absolute necessity of union, not to survive, but to thrive. Not only to survive, but to thrive. Political prosperity, okay? Notice what he doesn't talk about under the first point. Specific clauses of the Constitution. What's, what's curious here is that, uh, that ultimately these essays are devoted to convincing people to send pro-ratifying delegates to their state conventions. He says in essay number one, it would be great if we could trust that the American people are ready in October of 1787 to look at the Constitution in a dispassionate, sober, calm, cool, collected way and, and exercise a judicious estimate of its merits and demerits. That would be great. But then he says it's a thing more ardently to be wished than seriously to be expected or something to that effect. He says there are elements out there that are already making it difficult for that to happen, for, it to get, for the Constitution to have a fair hearing. That, to me, says Publius has to remove some obstacles. He's got to clear the path for people to see the genuine merits of the, constitu uh, the Constitution. And so, what he, what, interestingly enough, he does here is, I want to prove that the Constitution is the best thing, and the way I'm going to do it is by not showing it to you right away. Some things have to be established in the reader's mind first. This is my take on the Federalist. Do they have a national constitution? Yes. Yes. 
you are telling people to chuck that one, or well, essentially, because they didn't just revise and alter, right? Nobody brought a copy with them. So let's look at the Virginia plan, right? Uh, they've got something wholly new. Okay? So they already have an, uh, and are living under an existing con uh, national constitution. They want to replace it with something entirely different. That is very radical. Okay? That's rev almost revolutionary. And so he says, before I get you to look at the constitution, I need to establish in your mind first what it is that this constitution has to accomplish. And that is, fundamentally, union. I'm going to argue for 14 essays, why union is indispensable to your political prosperity. And at the end of Federalist 14, he says, all right, let's let the paint on that dry first. Okay? Now that I've established that sufficiently in your mind, let's look at the Constitution. Uh-uh. What's the next point on the outline? Now that we know what national constitutions are supposed to accomplish, which, what's the obvious thing to talk about next? Oh, and what's the title of that constitution? Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union. Now, what has he done? He has prepared or equipped his reader to be a dispassionate judge, not of the new constitution, but of the existing one. Now, he says, let's be honest. Play Dr. Phil here. How's that working for you? How are the articles working for you? He didn't attack the articles right out of the box. That would be, that would be radical, right? What he does is, let's, let me remind you what the articles are supposed to be doing without mentioning the articles. Let's talk about union. Let's talk about how we need it, how we can thrive under it. Right? Here's where Jay makes his most uh, important contributions, right? those essays sprinkled between two and eight, uh, John Jay. Once he establishes in their mind, wow, we really, yeah, we can Union's not up. We have to have union. Then he says, now look at the Articles of Confederation, essays 15 through 22. Now he says, let's look at how they are deficient, how they are weak. Right? Very theoretical essay, uh, essay 15. He contrasts a league with a real government, a government with teeth, a government that actually has a thing called laws, not requisitions, not requests. So he establishes in their mind firmly that union, got to have union to be free and prosperous. Then he establishes in their mind that the existing attempt to do that, the tool that they are using, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, isn't up to the task. Well, if the tool we're using isn't up to the task, what's the obvious thing to do? Get one that works. Now, does he have you look at the Constitution in any degree of specificity? Not yet. <laughs> We're working. We're working. Look at 15 for a sec, real quick. First paragraph. 15, please. The last line, I think it is. It will be my aim to remove the obstacles to your progress in as compendious a manner as it can be done without sacrificing utility to dispatch. And then I think uh, Chris pointed out yesterday, uh, the next line, in pursuance of the plan which I have laid down for the discussion of the subject, the point next in order to be examined is the insufficiency of the present confederation to the preservation uh, of the union. Uh, so he's removing obstacles. 
It's not that we can't see. It's that something is blocking our vision. There's mud on the windshield, and he's got to clear that out. First thing he establishes is you've got to have union. Second thing he establishes is the, is the present means to union. The articles are insufficient to the task. Then, third point is what? If not the Constitution head-on in terms of Article 1, Section 1, let's go through these clauses one after the other, what's the third point on the outline? Schwann, Schwann. All right. We need a government at least as energetic with, with enough powers as the one proposed to the attainment of this object. And so he's going to talk about what the Constitution has to offer, not so much in specific details, but in terms of uh, in kind of sweeping uh, principles and uh, in, in, uh, general issues that are, arise in there. Okay? And he does that in Federalist, what is that, 23 to 36. Okay. 37 in ways is, is like a pivot uh, in the Federalist Papers from one section to the next. We need union. Articles, articles aren't doing the job. We need something like uh, as energetic as the proposed Constitution. And it's once, the, once he establishes that, then he moves to point four on the outline. Point four, the conformity of the proposed Constitution to the true principles of Republican government. And if you can look at Roman numeral 16 in your Federalist now, in the introduction that uh, Kessler uh, presents, where he breaks down the Federalist Papers by, uh, according to Hamilton's plan. Volume 2, right? Point 4, the conformity of the proposed Constitution to the true principles of Republican government. That's when he starts looking at powers and, and mechanisms and, and structures. Uh, but he doesn't, if you notice on that list there, he doesn't look at a specific branch of government until Federalist 52. Okay. Also, those are a lot of obstacles he's got to get out of the way before he has you look at the Constitution. Taking us back to Federalist 10, why does he have an argument for Federalist 10 where he does, and then he brings it up again in Federalist 51? In Federalist 10, yes, he's arguing for the extended sphere. He's arguing for a large republic, as the you know, Republican re remedy for the diseases most incident to Republican government. But notice, what, why does he make the argument the way he does there? I would say it's linked to the general argument he's making, that large republics are useful because they enable us to do what? Uh, well, well, yeah, water down the factions, but what's the general argument? What's the point on the, the outline that he's making? The utility of union. See, large republics will enable us to secure union better. Right? That's why he's making the argument he does there. Uh, most people, when they, they talk about Federalist 10, uh, especially in textbooks, they, they don't make that connection. Okay? So he completes his argument when he gets to 51, because in 51, now what is he doing? Is he arguing for union at that point? No, he's already established that. In 51, the argument is point four on the outline. That it's, this proposed constitution doesn't only promote union, now it promotes republicanism 
And at the end of 51, republicanism, in his mind, true republicanism, is tantamount to self-government. Go ahead. Uh, I was just wondering, when you're speaking, they don't address the Constitution itself for such a long time. In specificity is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, was that because, now, I, I don't really know if, had the delegates or the representatives actually seen copies of the Constitution at this point, the first writings of the Federalists, and if so, then he was kind of, uh, I guess we'd say today, <laughs> right? Before, Before it came out. To present any, what he would imagine to be the uh, I would assume that copies of the Constitution were, were disseminated fairly quickly, but I don't, I don't, I couldn't give you a date. Do, do we know about that, Chris? Yeah, first of all, immediately after September 17th, they published it here in Philadelphia, and they immediately started sending. So they would have all had copies by the time the Federals paid. Which is late October, yeah. In the newspaper. Okay. So I would have had a copy of the Constitution yeah. to look at when the Federals. Okay. Yeah. Because I think that makes it but what's interesting is how much he has you avert your gaze, as it were. Mm -hmm. He has yeah. you think about some other things because obviously the proposed constitution is another tool. And the question is, well, if I know I need union and the current tool that I have doesn't work, will this tool work better? Okay. Uh, let me see if I can get through, if we can get through 51 first, and then if we have time left over, we can, we can talk about that, which is an important uh, point. The question was about um, whether, they, whether what they did and what they produced was legitimate. Uh, and that, of course, was raised uh, yesterday when I brought up the, the call to convention. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, that's Federalist 40, among others, where he talks about he has to explain, <laughs> a lot of explaining to do. He has to explain why they did what they did and if there were uh, any overreaching on their part, if there were any technical uh, improprieties, whether those improprieties were justified by the, the exigencies of the moment. Um, I mean, even the way I state that, you, you can tell what his answer obviously is going to be. Uh, but that's the explanation he has to give. Either A, no, we didn't, we didn't violate our charge, we fulfilled it, this is legitimate, etc. cetera. Uh, or he'll say, well, on the main we did, and if there are ways in which we didn't, notice what we were, you know, what we were doing here. We had a dying patient. <laughs> Someone told us, only use stitches, uh, but we really needed to amputate some things, right? Uh, do you not do that? You know? uh, and so what does, what does duty call for here? Uh, what... Uh, yeah, it would, would succeeding generations have expected us to do it at that point? Uh, What's that? Yeah, well, we'll 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 talk about that. All right. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, I would say that it wasn't, it's not like they're like, wow, they divided the powers of government. What a trip. It's not, what's different is that this is a national government. That's what would be shocking. It's like, 
wow, it looks just like, or maybe even better than our state constitutions, that's scary. In other words, uh, we already have one of those. <laughs> Why do we need another one of those at the national level? So there, I think that the scariness, as it were, the shock value would have come from that, that, that this is, we finally really made the shift from a league or a loose confederation to a national, what the anti-federalists would call a consolidated government. That's what, where the shock uh, would have come in, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, a number, a number of things funnel into that. Yes? Um, what were the literacy rates of the everyday person at that point in time? I mean, the constitutions are being, being handed down, federalist papers are being published. Mm -hmm. Did the average citizen be, I mean, what I, was the literacy rates? And then could the average citizen be able to read these and go, oh, I get what Madison's yeah, I get that question from our students, and I usually have two essential answers, and one which was actually given to us by David Hackett Fisher. He said of those who fought in the Revolution, there was a, a fairly high literacy rate, especially in the New England uh, regiments. Uh, so on average, especially comparatively in terms of worldwide, on average, uh, the colonists were much more literate uh, than uh, the, the greater portion of the, the earthly population. Uh, but secondly, you notice you don't have to be literate to talk about the Constitution. So a lot of people, may, those who could not read the Constitution, could still engage in conversation as people, you know, uh, spelled out what was in the document. Uh, so you didn't have to be literate to talk about it. Go ahead. What's that? Maybe you form your opinion based on other people's <laughs> Yeah, but plural. I mean, you're hearing a number of views, in fact, opposing views. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, after a while, you figure out... How, you know, the term of office, you can't lie about, I mean, you could lie about that, but that could be cleared up very quickly. Right. So, I mean, so some, some fairly, fairly important aspects of, of the Constitution, you don't have to be able to read, to, to know about, and then contemplate, huh, six years for the Senate, is that too long? Should the President be allowed to be indefinitely re-eligible for the office? Wow, four years, one person? You don't have to be literate, I would argue, uh, to talk about those things. Is there another hand? Starting that as actual requirement within, like the blue laws require parents to teach their kids how to read, and if they don't, in New England, you could have been taken away from your, you can have your kids taken away from you for not teaching them how to read, according to the blue laws. So, you know, it's just, it's kind of cool that you know, here, you know, religion creates so many conflicts in our nation, but as a group of teachers, you know, we look back to those, to that Puritan tradition, and it was them wanting people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. Okay. That. All right, uh, let's move to uh, Federalist 51. Federalist 51 is the culmination of an argument that he begins in Federalist 47 explicitly. Uh, when I teach uh, the topic of separation of powers in my class, we, we look at 47, 48, and 51 in, in some uh, detail. I won't do that today. I want us to focus on 51, but uh, I, I'll, let's at least skate across the surface of those uh, preceding essays uh, to see how Publius gets to 51. Okay. Uh, Federalist 47, he begins the discussion by talking about two things in particular. Uh, the most widely quoted source next to the Bible at this time was Montesquieu. 
When you're talking about the principles of the regime, it's lock. But when you shift from principles to structures, mechanisms, constitution making, it was Montesquieu all the way. Okay? So Publius knows that his opponents, the anti-federalists, are going to be quoting Montesquieu. He is going to quote Montesquieu for effect as well. And he's going to essentially say that they misinterpret Montesquieu. They don't have their Montesquieu right. And you'll see this pattern in Publius uh, in many of the essays. He will begin with an authority. Then he'll move to experience. And notice what he does in this essay. <laughs> he begins with Montesquieu, and then he goes to a real-world historical example, the British Constitution, which Montesquieu called at the time, right, the freest constitution on earth. Uh, then he'll move to more experience, right? State examples, state constitutions. Right? And then if there's more to be said, he'll speak in his own voice, as it were. He will speak under his own authority, offer arguments on, on principle outright, in the abstract, as it were. But when authority is helpful, he'll start there. When experience, especially when experience is helpful, he'll bring that to, to, to bear, and then he will uh, uh, finish it off with uh, reference to his own uh, uh, arguments that he just has come up with. So in 47, he likes the fact that everybody buys separation of powers. There's not an argument there. The anti-federalists aren't arguing for you know, a consolidation of powers at the state, uh, let alone the federal level. Uh, what he disagrees with here is the notion that Montesquieu tells us that for powers to be separate, they have to be wholly separate and distinct. That the executive cannot exercise any legislative power, right? or the legislative cannot exercise any judicial power. Uh, so what he, the, 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 the burden of his argument in Federalist 47 is to establish that it's consistent with Montesquieu. And he quotes Montesquieu over and over. It's consistent with Montesquieu, consistent with the, the, the freest constitution before the Americans uh, time. It's consistent with the British example, the British constitution. And it's consistent with uh, the states that you don't have to have all the executive authority in one branch, all the legislative authority in one branch, and all the judicial authority in another branch. Okay, that's what he does uh, in Federalist uh, 47. Uh, Federalist 48 complements that argument by saying, in fact, not only do you not have to have these entirely separate and distinct, uh, but in fact, uh, the only way that you can get true separation of powers, here's another counterintuitive argument, is by actually doing what with the powers every now and then? Mixing them, connecting and blending them. Uh, he says, parchment barriers Merely saying in your document, like I mentioned earlier in the week, we heart SOP, right? We love separation of powers. Merely saying that, offering that aphorism up in your kind of declaration of rights in the Constitution, doesn't go very far towards actually keeping the powers separate. Parchment barriers are insufficient, just writing it in the deed. More important is counterintuitive. More important is to actually connect them and blend them so that there is some way in which they can act so as to ensure that their uh, powers remain separate. So parchment barriers are insufficient for separation of powers. You need some connecting. You need some blending. Very counterintuitive uh, argument. Okay. 
Federalist 49. 49 and 50, actually, you could group. If you could group 47 and 48 together, 49 and 50 can be grouped together. 49 and 50 are about an alternative way of ensuring that separation of powers actually work itself out. Separation of powers is so important. Notice how many essays Publius is devoting to it. Uh, and that's one way, of course, uh, of, of helping people not be afraid of this new national government. He says, no, separation of powers, it doesn't say it, but it's in there. It's in there in a big way. But I need to help you see that it's in there. I don't want you to get worried when you see some connecting and blending. In fact, connecting and blending is required. The alternative that's offered, or the option that is offered in 49 and 50, is we can ensure separation of powers by actually holding constitutional conventions, either periodically, right, on a regular basis, Federalist 49, or on an ad hoc basis, uh, Federalist 50. So frequent appeals to the people, as it were, or periodical ones, Federalist 50. Uh, and he gives uh, some arguments why you don't want to have that kind of tinkering every now and then or on a regular basis to ensure that if one branch is overrunning the other, we can right the ship and, and kind of put those powers back and bring these powers back to where they belong. He says, we don't want to, to, to go the constitutional convention approach. Um, I don't spend a whole lot of time on 49 and 50 with my students, uh, which is not to say that there aren't important uh, points that Publius uh, brings up there. One in particular dealing with uh, this subject we're going to talk about when we look at Lincoln, reverence for the Constitution. Uh, Publius will argue uh, in those Federalist essays that uh, reverence is a useful thing. It's not everything, but it's very helpful uh, to have that on your side, as it were, the prejudice of the people, uh, not messing with something once you got it in place, especially something like the fundamental law of the land. Uh, so that's, a, that's an important uh, point uh, to talk about, but it's, it's, I've got a 12-week term. I, don't, I can't talk about everything, so I, I leave that one uh, to the side unless somebody brings it up. Now this brings us to Federalist 51, okay? Brings us to the very first sentence, right? To what expedient then shall we finally resort for maintaining, not in principle or in theory, we already established that. Everybody wants it. But how do we maintain it in practice? The necessary partition of power among the several departments as laid down in the Constitution. The only answer that can be given is that as all these exterior provisions, what were the exterior provisions? What was he just talking about in Federalist 49 and 50? Conventions, right? That's trying to help the Constitution be good from without. Those provisions, he thinks, uh-uh, are going to be found inadequate. The defect must be supplied by so contriving the interior structure of the government, as that its several constituent parts may, by their mutual relations, right, the connecting and blending, be the means of keeping each other in their proper places. Uh, the Anti-Federalists will respond to this uh, argument, and really, they will find it a laughable argument, uh, what we'll get to, this ambition, counteracting ambition. They, 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 don't, they think that's... That's, that's too clever by half. But this is what Publius says. Uh, we've got to find a way to make sure that the, each branch act 
and have the incentive to act in a way that it protects its own turf. So let's go through these arguments. Um, what's the first thing he says? What's one way in which, <coughs> practically speaking, in practice, structurally, we can uh, uh, promote separation of powers? This begins on, uh, let me see, which page here? What would you say? 318. 318? Okay, go ahead. Uh. Everybody in each branch should be so devoted to the purpose of that branch, making laws, carrying out laws, interpreting laws, that they don't mess around with the other two. Okay, and how? And I think I think that's right. Specifically, what's a way we can do it? What's the first thing he mentions? And so, how, how do we achieve that? What's that? Totally separate function. Uh, okay, but again, get, be be more specific. And how do you ensure that that happens? We're, so we're like, we're getting warmer. Uh, we're, he's not there yet. He's not at the two levels yet. Go ahead. All right, so how are they appointed? Remember what Madison's original plan was for the legislature and the executive? What would the lower house do vis-a-vis -vis the upper house? Where does the president come from? Two houses or so, a lot, too much connecting and blending. <laughs> now we have Madison arguing what? That that appointments, what? All right, that's it. One way you make sure that the powers remain separate and distinct is don't let one power have an undue influence on who's exercising the power in the other branch. Well, let's notice we haven't looked at the Constitution yet, but ask yourself, the reader's going to ask himself, well, okay, let's see if this works. Does the House appoint the Senate? Senate appoint the House. Wow, pretty good. Okay, people appoint the House. People through their state legislatures appoint the Senate. So far, so good. Is there any connection between the legislature and the appointment of the president? How's the president appointed? We didn't talk about this in too much detail, but how's electoral college work? Who can't be a, an elector to the electoral college? Oh, a sitting representative or a senator can't assemble at the nation at, at his state's his or her state's capital and cast a vote for the president. Barred explicitly in the Constitution from doing so. So Congress doesn't have an undue influence on the appointment of the president. They don't have the power, the constitutional right to do so. All right, who does that leave us? Oh, what did you say? True, true. Uh, the fallback position is when we don't get a majority, thank you, uh, when we don't get a majority uh, for president or vice president, then it gets kicked over to the Congress uh, in the way that's spelled out, first in the House and then uh, the Senate for the vice president. Uh, we have the curious thing about the Electoral College. It never really worked <laughs> the way they envisioned. Okay. You don't see that argument being made by Publius here. What's that? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we've, we've left out one branch. 
Okay, hmm. But the other two branches are involved in getting them into office. Okay. How do you mitigate the effect that, or the influence, that the other branches have on the appointment of the judiciary? Okay, but but in, in appointment, how do you what what monumental fact is true about the judiciary that ensures that the appointment doesn't have an undue influence on their decision making? Yeah, their term of office, right? Essentially, a lifetime tenure, and you know the great example is, is Ike's comment after Earl Warren, right? It's the worst damn full mistake I ever made, right? When Earl Warren uh, comes on the bench and you. You know, the Warren Court, right? Uh, Brown v. Board, among other things. Uh, the cases dealing with uh, what used to be political questions. So, uh, yeah, and, and just look at the court today, right? Or even the court a year or two ago, before Alito and, uh, especially before Alito and uh, Roberts were appointed. How many appointees were, uh, were uh, due to Republican presidents? Seven out of nine. Was that a Republican court? <laughs> Not in practice. I, it's, it's, I think the consensus is fairly clear that it may have been called the Rehnquist Court, but it was really controlled uh, by some O'Connor and or, or Kennedy, and the decisions were not this kind of conservative uh, carte blanche given to the carte blanche given to the court. Stevens, not a reliable uh, vote for those who for, for the president who appointed Stevens. Uh, so anyway, um, the, the tenure of office. And also the divided nature of its appointment, right? Oh, I'm sorry, I took away stole your thunder. Go ahead. Go ahead. President may get to suggest, but he only gets to suggest. The Senate has to approve, so neither has more than half of the control. Okay, so one nominates, the other appoints or approves. Okay, and it's not all of Congress, right? It's just the Senate. Okay, a smaller group, a more select body. Uh, ostensibly a wiser group. Uh, they're, they're the, the term of office is also helpful. They're around longer so that they might have more experience upon which to, to, to base their uh, decision. So, appointments. Oh, go ahead. I think what's ironic to note is that he, although he says that that's one way to get appointments to be elected, he wanted to, remember, he wanted the Senate to be elected by the lower house. So, it just seems that, like we were talking about, What's that? So it was merely great he wasn't perfect. Well, I mean, look, he's got it. He's as he reminds. He's at pains to remind the, the the reader. We're not we're not asked the question. What's the best ideal constitution to achieve the objectives that we're seeking? No, we've got the one we're living under, and arguably falling apart under, and we have this one. The question is, looked at judiciously. Uh, he would even say in, in Federal 37, moderately. Right? If we don't ask, if we don't make right, the, the perfect or the ideal the enemy of the good, um, is this one sufficiently, uh, sufficient to the task? Does it have enough going for it? It may not be perfect, but does it have enough going for it? And the other thing is, is, is he's hopeful that if we actually adopt this Constitution, that he has offered an interpretation that will make it work as well as something like this could work. Go ahead. Which yesterday we were talking about the absurdity of that phrase, a more perfect union. 
Right. Which, you know, actually, it fits perfectly. Because, <laughs> oh, but <laughs> <laughs> the phrase fits very well. You know, it's, it's not a perfect union. It's a more perfect mm -hmm. union. It's mm -hmm. more perfect than what we had before. You know. It's gooder. That's right. <laughs> Glad they didn't use that. <laughs> All right, what's the next point? Uh, appointments, okay? They're not controlling one another in terms of who one another are, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, by the way, I should add, uh, we get this in, 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 in a much more explicit way in Federal 78, but uh, he says, look, there's another reason why the judiciary is set up the way it is. Y yes, we want to ensure separation of powers, but the judiciary has a job to do, and it's the nature of that job that as well dictated its appointment process. So it's not just about separation of powers. The, again, the Constitution doesn't exist so that we can work out separation of powers. Remember, you have separation of powers to accomplish an objective. Each branch exists to accomplish its respective objective. And it's because of what the judiciary is set up to do that we don't make it a popular branch. That, you know what I'm saying? So there's a number of arguments that go into it. It's not just the separation of, uh, separation of powers argument uh, that's at, at stake here. Uh, sorry. Um. Uh, if I'm reading this right, tell me if I am. If the uh, executive has some legislative power, and the, and the legislative power has some executive power, would it be Madison's intent then to suggest that the judiciary has some legislative power? No, it's not. Uh, it's not so much uh, a question of. Well, if there's some overlap here, this other branch has to have the same overlap because it might actually be subversive of their objective. The important point is to, is to establish in the reader's mind that it's okay and, in fact, necessary for each branch, especially what he will call the weaker branches, the executive and the judiciary. The judiciary. The executive and the judiciary, as weaker branches, we need ways for them to be fortified against the most powerful branch in a Republican government, and that is far and away, not the executive, but the legislature. How do we do it with the judiciary? Term of office is huge. It goes a long way. Uh, to doing that. Like, would Madison think that like, Brown, the Brown decision was acceptable? Like, would kind of James Madison? Yeah. I don't say, I'm, not, I'm not sure what to, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get us too far in, in hypotheticals here because, in part, education at that time wasn't a national uh, objective. So, it would I mean, be hard to ask that. Not just like answer that. for against, like, a, in a lawsuit, but ruling, ruling in favor of something that Yeah, I don't I think that will take us too far afield here. I guess my general point, though, is that uh, what Publius will argue is that the term of office for the judiciary and its power, uh, its judicial power, it will defend its own prerogatives precisely because it gets to make judgments about what those prerogatives are. But the term of office is helpful. And getting back to the original question, it's um, simply because the president gets the treaty-making power and the, the negative, the qualified veto, that doesn't mean the court needs to also have some similar legislative authority in order to bolster its independence. Its independence is bolstered primarily by the fact that once appointed, always appointed, essentially, is the argument he'll make. All right, what's the second point? After appointments? Compensation. Compensation, what he calls emoluments, right? You'll definitely have to define that one for them. Uh, how they get paid, right? Whoever butters your bread, they're going to dictate to you, right? Whoever pays the piper calls the tune. Uh, so let's look at it. OK, 
Okay? He says these are ways in which you can ensure that separation of powers works out in practice when you don't have an undue influence. All right? How does the House get paid? Who has the authority to do that? The House. Who sets their salary? The House with... Uh, that's new. That's that. Uh, that actually, that was one of the proposed. That was one of the first amendments proposed, and it, oh, no expiration date. So it eventually got three fourths of the states uh, to approve it. That there has to be an intervening election. But because that wasn't part of the Constitution, who sets the House's salary? Not the House. The House and the Senate. Who sets the Senate salary? The House. The House and the Senate. All right. Presidential uh, veto. So there's some control there. Who sets the president's salary? Remember, who sets everybody's salaries? Come on. Congress. Congress. Now, what are the qualifications? What are the ways in which we don't, excuse me, what are the ways in which we restrict or qualify that authority so that it doesn't have an undue influence, especially on the other branches? Executive, how do they set the executive salary? They, uh, they could during his term of office. So they could say right now, George Bush, in fact, they did, didn't, several years ago, wasn't his doubled? They yes. went from 200 to 400,000? Yes. Way overdue. Can you imagine that? The President of the United States gets paid what a fairly successful junior associate at a law firm <laughs> gets paid. I know, I just got free rent. You're right. That's a good question. <laughs> free copying privileges. That's not bad. Uh, landscaping, yeah. No, but, 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 you know, well, the most recent one, right, is Judge Ludig. He gets paid, I, he, when he was a, a, a federal, uh, ju, uh, federal court judge, he got paid less than 200000 I think it's 150 or 175000 um, Guess where he's working now? He's working for Boeing. He's making probably, he's clearing more than half a million now a year. Um, his kids, the, the public reason he gave was that, you know, I've got two kids who are ready to go to college, i.e., I can't afford to send them on my federal salary. Okay, all right, go ahead. Go ahead. I was wondering if Madison was thinking about this, which is an issue for us today. It is becoming a government for the rich in terms of that they're the only ones capable of going after these offices. In our state legislature, we have this argument all the time, our pay in North Dakota is pretty low for our state legislators, and every time they try to raise it, there's this big cry, oh my God, they're gonna raise their pay, but the only people that can run for legislature are one, retired, or two, rich people. Yeah, or independent businessmen, exactly, yes. exactly. And it, it's, a, it's a sad state of affair, and it's a limitation on democracy. I'm wondering if Madison was trying to address that problem. That, we, he addresses it in a different way with the judiciary in terms of the knowledge that's required to be a federal court judge. He says, unless we give them essentially lifetime tenure, a, a guaranteed job for life, few men will leave a, what everyone knows is a lucrative practice, the law, uh, to be an attorney. Few would leave it to devote all the time and energy that it would take to be a federal court judge, keeping up with all the statutes, keeping up with all the, uh, the codes, the, the law uh, decisions, excuse me, the opinions. He says we have to give them a reason, an incentive for wanting to, to be experts for the benefit of the union. Uh, there the argument is not so much salary. The argument is, is more in terms of expertise. Um, unless they know they're in for life and they can take care of themselves, they won't, they won't go that route. 
Uh, but getting back to emoluments, um, the president's, right, when you set the president's salary, Congress today could pass a law either cutting it in half or making it a million dollars. But that law could not take effect until the next, term. the next term begins when you're not sure whether that same president would be there or not. What about the judiciary? Oh, go ahead. The other thing, at least one other thing, the thing that comes up in my mind in terms of what we call campaign finance reform today is do we want to get to the point where we think the government has to fund its own prospective officials? How free a society is it when government is dictating who gets money to run for office? Because you can, they don't just give the money to everybody. Hey, I want to run. I want to run. I want to run. I want to run. Um, you have to show that you are... Uh, yeah, uh, electionable, election worthy, or something like that. And doesn't that take a lot of organization? Doesn't that take a lot of funding, et cetera? So there are a number of factors that go into uh, that go into this. Doesn't it have something to do with what you say? Also, at this time, they consider that people would run for office, go for two years, go for six years, and then go back home. Not consider it a career. Real job. <laughs> All right, I want to get us back to 51. They were citizen legislatures. I just want to say, you know, spent his entire career basically working in the legislative branch and did many of the founding fathers. That was their job, was politics. I mean, and you even look at the careers of people like James Buchanan, spent his entire life in government service too. So to say that they were just a citizen legislature, not true. Yeah, I, th I think the, more, the norm then, though, would have been not so much their career in a particular office, but in office per se. But this is where the so. women come in. Go ahead. Because if you look at those men's letters home, it was their wives who were running their businesses at home that was keeping their families fed and clothed. It was Abigail Adams running the family farm that kept their children fed and clothed. It was, and again and again, you find that she writes to John Adams, and John Adams writes back, and, you know, can we make this work? What do you think about that as far as the business? You've got debts owed to you as a lawyer. You need to come back and collect them. How do I collect them for you? You know, and, and all of them had, or most of them had those kinds of correspondence with wives. We have men who um, pulled out and didn't go to the Continental Congress, one, because his wife said, honey, you can't go. I don't know how to run your business. And he said, I'm sorry, I can't go because my, you know, and and he had served once and said, I can't go back again. She can't hack it, you know? I mean, so as far as, well, she did, you know, and 
that just shows this, the strength of the women who did, you know? So as far as it becoming a career, if you look at them talking in their letters, it was a service that they were giving up their careers. Uh -huh. they, and they didn't intend to do it for a lifetime. It just kind of, they were asked to serve again, and they felt duty-bound to say yes, despite what it meant to their private fortunes and their careers. Very good. So I'm not sure that it's the same as someone who sets out today for a career in political science or career in politics. But what she says okay. also, also proves the point that these people, many of them were extremely wealthy and or, and or had very lucrative businesses which didn't have a conflict of interest you know, or their, issue at that time. Or their families made major sacrifices as far as their Well, that's always the case. That's I mean, always John the case. Adams, for example, Okay. All right. Third point on the one, uh, on the list, and he says this is the most important one. What's the third one? And this is this is really the core uh, of of uh, Federalist Fifty One. Okay. That uh, is that top of was that three nineteen? Okay. No. <laughs> Is that what you, oh, that's right, that's right. Is that 319 in, in yours, right? Yeah. To give to those who administer each department the necessary constitutional means and personal motives. It's, it's curious to think about giving someone a motive. Uh, but he says, this constitution is structured in such a way that the members of each branch of the federal government will have, on the one hand, actual power constitutional means to protect themselves from the other branches, as well as, on the other hand, personal motives to do so. Okay. Uh, famous passage. Why don't, uh, can somebody read this, beginning with the ambition? Someone read that out loud for us? And, and read that to the end, end of the paragraph. Ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of a man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. It may be a reflection on human nature that such devices should be necessary to control the abuses of government. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. A dependence on the people is, no doubt, the primary control on the government. But experience has taught mankind the necessity of auxiliary Precautions. All right, those auxiliary precautions is what he's talking about uh, in this essay, right? Um, Federal's 46, he makes the argument that, you know, the primary control, yes, elections. But interestingly enough, and, and I point this out over and over to my students, are elections sufficient to ensure good government? Not self-determination, but self-determination that actually produces the protection of rights and the promotion of the common good. Are elections enough? No. Okay? That doesn't mean you throw out elections. No, we need elections. They're the primary control on government. That's the primary way in which citizens make sure that uh, their government is doing their bidding. 
But elections are not enough. The tricky part is not just giving people the right to vote. The tricky part is doing what? Actually coming up with the constitution that is prudently designed to ensure that once you get people in office, as they are in office, and as long as they stay in office, they continue to do the things and act the part that you expected them to, that they both have uh, uh, the, the uh, capacity of mind uh, and the character, the heart, uh, virtue enough uh, to do their job well. Uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. Right? So we, le we learned something about human nature in this passage. Uh, the whole point of government is precisely the fact that men aren't angels. Okay? If angels were to govern men, do we need a constitution? Do you need voting? No, because presumably angels would be angelic. <laughs> uh, they would act their part appropriately. Uh, the trick is men need government, and that government is going to be peopled by men. So we have to have uh, these controls. And look at the order of priority here. He says, first, and this is what makes it hard to frame a government, How difficult to come up with a constitution. Notice he's making this argument before he looks at Article 1 dealing with the House, and then the Senate, and then Article 2 with the executive, and then Article 3 with the judiciary. He's, again, giving us reasons why we need to, in a way, lower our expectations of this constitution, not expect it to be the end-all and be-all perfect document uh, uh, for us to suit our needs. It's got to be good enough to accomplish its objective. Okay. What do you do? You first enable the government to control the government. He made that argument as far back as Federalist 15, where he distinguishes a real government from a league. A real government issues commands with a sanction, and they apply laws to people, to individuals, not states or people in their collective capacity. Um, so he, see, he makes no bones about it. Right, right here he says... Our first task, if we're going to come up with a real constitution, not a Nerf constitution, that's why I refer to the Articles of Confederation as a Nerf <laughs> constitution. Right? It looks like a constitution, but you, know, you can bounce it off a kid's head and nothing will happen. Right? Um, it's a lawnmower that doesn't cut. Right? You make that lawnmower, those lawnmower blades out of styrofoam, you can run it over your foot. No problem. Nothing happens. But that's precisely it. Nothing happens. We need a lawnmower that cuts grass. We need a constitution that controls people. Scary. Scary. Right? No. We need a government that controls the government in the next place, precisely because it's scary, precisely because you're giving power, precisely because they're going to control you, i.e., issue commands, pass laws. We need to be controlled, but we also need to control the controllers. We've got to channel, or more proper term, we have to constitute those powers in such a way that the power, more often than not, will be used to protect us rather than to hurt us. Okay? So control the governed, and then next, control the controllers, right? Oblige it to control itself. Uh, and this requires uh, what he calls in the next paragraph inventions of prudence. Right? These are these auxiliary precautions, right? How do we protect the people? Elections! Okay, that was the easy question. Well, now how do we draw up a constitution? Separation of powers. Okay, well, how do you separate them? 
How long should the terms of office be? Um, what, what's, what's the issue that he addresses next on this list when, when he's talking about auxiliary precautions? Uh, obliging it to control itself. How do we do that? Okay, go ahead. Uh, he has each branch check the other branch. Which? Okay, but interestingly enough, um, what's, uh, what is the first branch that he addresses here? In a Republican form of government, where's the threat? Legislature. Boy, Publius can't, uh, he, he never tires of bringing this up. He says, man, we've got to get you, I've got to shake this uh, opinion on your part that you think that the greatest threat when it comes to government simply is an iron executive, right? It's like, no, that's not the kind of regime we've set up here, folks. The state level and now at the national level, we have republics. In a republic, the power is with the one that commands. And the one that commands is the legislature. Oh, so where should we be most cautious? Where should we apply the most checks? The legislature, and look what he does here. What's the first thing he points out about the legislature? It's divided. We're not talking about separation of powers simply legislative, executive, judicial. He says, do you want to divide powers? Where's the most power? In the legislature? Divide them. How are they divided? Not just into two branches. Look at how dissimilar they are, even though they have a common task. Now, we couldn't make them so dissimilar that they couldn't get any work done. Remember, that would undermine the first priority. First priority is what? To control the governed. Is to have a real government. People talk, like to talk, talk about the, the founders. Oh, the genius of the founders is, is they created gridlock. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> I'm so afraid of my surgeon that he might botch my heart surgery that I'm going to make him use boxing gloves while he uses the instruments. I'm going to make it very difficult for him to do his job well, to harm me. No. Do no harm, yeah, that's part of the Hippocratic Oath. Too bad doctors don't subscribe to it anymore. Uh, uh, that's, do no harm is good, but ultimately, at the end of the day, if I have a problem, I want it fixed, <laughs> right? Um, sir, hand, go ahead. Well, and I think you're right that he really is worried about it because he says even that it might be even further necessary to guard against them, you know, as the, as the scene fit. I think he really is worried about their power. Mm -hmm. And so notice, even though he knows why we have two branches and part of the way they were set up was this whole compromise with you know, big state, small state kind of stuff, um, he doesn't talk about that. He wants us, again, not to look at the Constitution as if it was a bundle of, of compromises, right? just the outcome of you know, this, this uh, diverse group of individuals. Um, he says, look at the benefit that we have as a result of bicameralism. This is an advantage for us. How are they dissimilar? terms of office, modes of appointment, qualifications for office. And in some sense, even one branch has some powers that it shares with another that the, the more popular branch does not. In all of these dissimilar ways, we get representatives to be proud of representatives and guarding their turf against the more select, esteemed body of the senators and vice versa. Okay? By that process, we get each of them to defend their own legislative turf. Are they? I think they are. I think it's up to them. They've chosen to be paid the same. It's not mandated. No. I'd be I mean, surprised if they were paid the same, but I would assume that the senators get paid more, but I don't know. No, they don't. 
Wow. News to me. News to me. Go ahead. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I think who was mentioning this earlier? Uh, Sherilyn was mentioning that uh, that the Madison at least thinks out loud here, and he said, you know, if there's such a if this threat is so great from the legislature, perhaps an absolute negative would have been fitting. Remember, the king had the absolute negative, but he says, no, nah, But on second thought, right? Uh, may not this deep, he said, perhaps it would be neither altogether safe nor alone sufficient. So uh, even though that's a possibility, of course, he's got to deal with the document that he's got in front of him. He says, may not this defect of an absolute negative be supplied by some qualified connection between this weaker department and the weaker branch of the stronger department? Who is he talking about there? Senate and... President, right? So that's a way in which we have more division of power, more ambition, counteracting ambition, this joint Senate executive uh, action. Now the, the, the conversation turns to a different principle, and this is a principle that augments the point that he is making, uh, that further augments the point that he was making in Federalist 10. What's the principle? Uh, it's, it's uh, as mundane as the principle of separation of powers. Federalism, right? The fact that what's the, what's the biggest or grandest way that we divide power is not even just among the branches, but how? Yeah, we put some power at home and some power abroad, as it were. We put some of our, in fact, arguably most of the, uh, most of the governmental authority, we put in a state constitution. And then the rest of the governmental authority we put at the national level. Okay. The federal system of America, right? what he calls the, uh, the compound republic, he says further down in that paragraph, hence a double security arises to the rights of the people. The different governments will control each other at the same time that each will be controlled uh, by itself. Now this next paragraph, super long paragraph, there must be something really uh, important that Publius needs to develop here. What is this long paragraph all about? Okay. Federalist 10. Federalist 10. Now, um, is it just a repeat of Federalist 10? Uh, you guys have any kind of notes there? Does he just repeat the argument that he made uh, earlier in the Federalist, or does he develop it more in any way? Does he elaborate it? Uh, give us something we haven't seen yet. That's an extension of the argument he makes in Federalist 10, which is to say it's not so bad uh, in a way if people were united by some common impulse of passion, uh, prejudice, or interest. The problem is when they actually want to do something about it, right? 
Um, who cares if they all think this, or a majority thinks in this kind of inimical uh, or malicious way? Um, if they kept that to themselves, we, could, we wouldn't be worried. It's when they actually try to carry it out that it would be a problem. Anything else? Uh, okay, well, what, what does he, why does he put Rhode Island on the spot? What does he point out about, what will we, what will we, anybody can answer this one. Uh, what, well, 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 it's more than that, though. What, what benefit will accrue to Rhode Islanders? What benefit will accrue to any member of the union, any citizen of the union, by adopting this national constitution? What's Publius's claim? And he uses Rhode Island as kind of a set piece for this. That even the minority or the smaller, the less representative factions will be protected by the stronghold? Uh, protecting factions, per se? They'll be, they'll be protected by the majority. Uh, okay. There's an interest there for the majority to protect the minority. Okay. Um, I if think we're, outside, we're warming up to it. What? If they're outside the union, they'll be perpetually oppressed by this faction. Yeah, okay, it's so... Yeah, the idea here is if you become a part of this union, what actually, how is it good for state governments to be a part of this national federal system? I mean, wh why, again, uh, why does he bring up the case of, of Rhode Island? Well, because. What's that? And. Oh, okay. I'm, but even within Rhode Island itself, like, let's let's read it actually. Rhode Island's too small. Sort of the faction can easily take control. But if you have a really big union, then the faction can easily take control because there's more voices. To he goes further though. What will he say that even factions will call for in Rhode Island if things go the way they're going? Go ahead, Dennis. Justice is the general good. What about that? Okay, and justice for him, he says, is the sumum bonum when it comes to, to government. But look at how it applies at the state level. Uh, this is the, well, I was going to say the, the, the last paragraph, but that, page 322. Yes, it's this, yeah, let, let, let's back up and, and, and take that all in. Um, starting where he brings up uh, state of Rhode Island, I mean, this is worth repeating. It can be little doubted that if the state of Rhode Island were separated from the Confederacy and left to itself, the insecurity of rights under the popular form of government, wow, you get the exact opposite result of what popular government is supposed to do. These factions are overrunning that place. He says that, that the insecurity of rights under the popular form of government within such narrow limits, puny Rhode Island, would be displayed by such reiterated oppressions of factious majorities. So don't just think of one factious majority ruling, but over and over and over again. What happens after a while, he says? Some power altogether independent of the people. How popular is that? Not, right? That power would soon be called for by the voice of the very factions whose misrule had proved the necessity of it. Things will get so bad that even those who had been in a faction will call for somebody to save them from the mess that they have created. The idea here is that if you've got an, if you have a state, we're not getting rid of the states, but if you have a state that becomes a part of this extended sphere, put differently, federal republic, 
compound republic, power divided between the state and the national government, prudently designed as Publius is laying it out, what will be the result? A, a diminished likelihood that your popular, your much vaunted uh, popular form of government will become so misruled that the people there will no longer be concerned about their rights, they'll just be concerned about their survival and calling for somebody to save them, namely a despot. This, this is why I like this so much in like bringing up in the whole civil rights era later on with students, because you know, it's like, where, where were some of these people going to be able to turn? They weren't, they couldn't turn to their state governments. That's right. And for students, it's really good to go back to this and say, look, yeah, and we, we, we may have an opportunity to talk about this at greater length in our final leg. Um, the appeal to the federal government was instrumental to the success of the civil rights movement. Remember, when we think of uh, uh, the Montgomery bus boycott, um, how was that finally concluded? It was a Supreme Court decision. Thurgood Marshall arguing on behalf of the NAACP, and he didn't like what King was doing. I, but what the point I, I was uh, going to end up with here is, on, on the one hand, we can see the clear successes. On the other hand, we forget the clear failures, that it was a Supreme Court that actually yeah. gutted <laughs> the first Civil Rights Act yeah. in the 1870s, that gutted uh, interpretations of the Privileges and Immunities Clause and the Equal Protection Clause uh, to the detriment of black Americans. That happened at the federal level, not the state level. So it's uh, there just isn't a categorical, you know, uh, uh, advantage. Isn't what he is predicting here in this Federalist paper exactly what happened with the French Revolution and Counter-Revolution? Go ahead. Because they created a mess that then turned on them. And how did they... Counter-Revolution. That's right. How did they get out of it? If you look earlier in the Federalist Papers, um, the, the argument is made as well, I think it's in s 7 or 8, uh, that if the states didn't form a union, right, if they didn't see the utility of, the, uh, of union for their political prosperity, what would happen in terms of bordering states? You know, all these streams and lack of fortifications and no standing army and no big mountainous regions that bar one region from the other, all these things that are opportunities for greater social intercourse and getting to know one another and coming together on common ground, that if you didn't have some unifying element, some overarching American system of government, this, the, the idyllic portrait that Publius paints in Federalist 2 becomes in Federalist 4 as well, and in particular Federalist 7 and 8, all these things, all, our great openness actually makes it easier for us to go to war against each other, have these really rapacious battles, and things get so bad that at that point in time, I think it's federal state where he says, people who will no longer be concerned with their rights and just be calling for now, not a legislature to protect them, but a stronger executive. Which is what allowed Napoleon the ability to take control of the situation and establish a Right. Uh, let me finish this, uh, this uh, paragraph here. He says, in the extended republic of the United States, this federal principle, 
And among the greater variety of interests, parties, and sects, which it embraces, a coalition of a majority of the whole society could seldom take place on any other principles than those of justice and the general good. This is Dennis's point, the culmination of that. Whilst there being thus less danger to a minor from the will of a major part, there must let, be less pretext also to provide for the security of the former by introducing into the government, here it is again, a will not dependent on the latter, or in other words, a will independent of the society itself. You ever get to the point where you have, you need to call on some security that isn't dependent on the people? If you ever get to the point where even a particular branch of government, say the Supreme Court, for example, becomes the, the end-all and be-all determinant of what your rights are, not amenable to popular will in some form, some peaceful, deliberate, political form, uh, then what, what, what have you done to po your popular form of government? We're going to get at this when, when Lincoln actually addresses uh, the conclusion to the Dred Scott case. And it's a point he makes in the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858. It's a point he, keep, he brings it up as president in his first inaugural address. It is no less certain that it is, than it is important, notwithstanding the contrary opinions which have been entertained, that the larger the society, here he puts his exclamation mark on the extended republic, the large republic solution, the larger the society, provided it lie within a practicable sphere, and this is how federalism helps. You have government at the local level as well as the national level. The larger the society, the more duly capable it will be of self-government. This is counterintuitive. The prevailing consensus was the anti-federalist consensus at this time, which was, you want freedom? Keep it small. Circumscribe the sphere. Bring it close to home. Keep your rulers on a short leash. Rotation in office. Recall. Numerous representation. All of these things that the anti-federalists are calling for. Publius says... Don't think so. It's not borne out. Happily for the Republican cause, and look at what he says here. The Republican cause, the practicable sphere, may be carried to a very great extent by judicious modification and mixture of the federal principle. So interestingly enough, the federal principle is what enables people to be a self-governing people. This is new. This is novel. The idea here is, in short, self-government is not workable when you keep republics small. We in America have discovered and here have the opportunity to cement or establish the idea for the world to see that if you want to be a free people, you need to not just have a republic, but a large republic, separated powers, separation of powers, something he didn't talk about in Federalist 10 because he was, all he was doing there was arguing for union, the utility of union, so he didn't have to talk about separation of powers then. Separation of powers and the federal principle allows you to extend the sphere and to have a government that most, more, more, more often than not will produce uh, justice and uh, the general good. <laughs> Plenary time is 5 till 11. <laughs>